Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com And we are recording. And we are recording. And you know what? The, the leaf blowers are back in my neighborhood. You know, we had a moratorium where you're not allowed to use them after Memorial Day before Labor Day, but that is over. So I must have some really messy neighbors or something. Either that or they can't handle the sign of one single leaf on their lawn. Not one leaf will stand. <laughs> not one leaf. I just don't know how they're dealing with the voles. You know, it's like, gosh, if the leaf is driving them crazy, I I imagine the tunnels that must run under their yard like it does mine must really be sending them over the edge. So, Brendan, what's the difference between a mole and a vole? Voles look more like mice. Moles are basically like blind. Uh, there's a like a starfish or star nose mole that looks like really interesting. I don't know if we have those here, but moles dig their own tunnels. I believe they go deeper uh, and they have different diets. Moles go after grubs. So if you have grubs in your grass, you're going to get a lot of moles. Um, if you voles go after like uh, bark around trees. So if you have fruit trees, voles will go under the snow right up to your fruit tree and can uh, take the bark off in a circle. Wow. I definitely, I definitely have moles. But in a way you want the moles to eat the grubs, right? Yes. But in order to do that, they tunnel through everything. And they're also eating your earthworms. The problem with using grub killers, then you also kill your earthworms, which which are beneficial for your soil. So I have a mole chasing windmill that I have to install. I have the, it's just this small thing, but you have to put it on an eight foot long metal rod that you have to sink into the ground and then put the windmill on top. And then as the rod vibrates due to the wind, supposedly it keeps the moles away. Wow. Supposedly. How many do you need for your yard? Like, will it only cover like 10 square feet? Like, do you have to create a whole windmill field if you got like an acre? They apparently go fairly far. So I have a quarter acre, so I think I would only need one. I've also used sonic spikes, which they're like solar paneled and you'll hear them buzzing. uh, And they seem to be somewhat effective. One thing that's really useful is castor oil. Yeah. That's what yeah, I've heard. Basically ricin, ricin, so poison your moles. <laughs> it's it's actually, if I remember correctly, Brendan, the, the mole repellent that they sell in stores costs like $13, $14. And it's just basically watered down castor oil, which you can get really cheap generally. Um, but yeah, nothing has ever worked for me. I've done all of those. I didn't do the windmill thing, but I had the little solar spikes. Have you seen the scissor traps? Those look pretty awesome and weird. Now I probably won't go so far as trapping I- yeah you stick them in, in the hole in the hole and then when they come along they trigger it and it snaps and oh, yeah. cuts them like scissors it's pretty but then you know you got them when you pull it out well it is <laughs> halloween so we're coming up on halloween yeah. so. <laughs> see joe with the scissor hands out in the yard <laughs> catches moles they don't they don't oh. have eyes right they're eyeless moles because i think the ones we saw one dana actually got bit by one no yeah she it was underneath a planter and she was trying to chase it out and it bit oh her. my and oh. i said oh great oh you can just imagine what kind of uh disease you're gonna catch from did she have to go get rabies nuts no 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 
didn't break the skin, fortunately, but I think it was eyeless, if I remember correctly. You're going to let weird. your cats out once in a while to, to clean those uh, up. Yeah. yeah. They stay inside. <laughs> so, well, this is fun, a fun intro. <laughs> so we thought today we would talk about our uh, most recent express session, which was held on October the 14th. And, um, and the topic for that session was the employment situation, and more importantly, the difficulty that individuals and companies have had out here finding people to work for them. And this seems to be something that's going on nationally. And um, I think it's interesting because I, you know, I guess there's a lot of reasons for it. I mean, for a long time, people were trying to blame the enhanced unemployment benefits for keeping people from working. But I find it hard to believe that you know, an extra $300 a week would stop you from pursuing real work. So um, I'm not sure if that came up at all during the talk, but that's something that I've seen on a larger scale that people, but those benefits have largely um, gone away now. So th there's, there's really no explanation for that really fitting into the scheme of people not. I think it came up in passing in it, but I was, I was ready to point out that um, the federal benefits expired on Labor Day. And then in September, the workforce, which is people working and people actively seeking jobs, actually dropped by 183,000. And uh, the job growth rate fell to 194,000 in September, which was the lowest number of the year. So none of those factors, I mean, it, it suggests that the idea that people were taking the, uh, the unemployment benefits and, and not working. And so getting rid of the unemployment benefits, we get them back into the workforce. It did not turn out that way. I, I think one, one effect of that though, and it was kind of touched on um, in, in the sessions event by uh, Mark Smith, who's a, a restaurant owner on the East End is, and I think this is a national trend too, is um, the, the, the lockdown and, and unemployment benefits that came along with that gave a lot of people, especially in the restaurant industry, the ability to pause and to take a look at their careers and decide if they wanted to work for restaurants, work on weekends and nights and holidays and uh, be away from their families and, and all that. And by having that unemployment or that stopgap, uh, people were spending more time with their families and looking at, at other options. And I think that was that's one of the reasons nationally and locally, according to Mr. Smith, that that the restaurants in particular have had trouble finding employees as, as people decided that 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 wasn't necessarily the kind of work that they wanted to be doing um, anymore. Hours cut back. So I think a lot of people in specific to the restaurant industry sort of stepped back and said, well, hold it. You know, uh, you know, working holidays, working late nights, working weekends, you know, is this really the way I want to spend my life and, and particularly with my family life? And um, I think a lot of them said, you know what? And the answer is no. And they, they went out to different places. Look, there's a lot of jobs available. Um, you know, maybe I'll get a job that's maybe a few dollars an hour less, but, you know, I won't have to commute. I can work days i won't have to work weekends you know i could holidays I'll also with office workers companies that want their employees to be back at their desks nine to five monday through friday i think those people don't want to go back you know they got used to the whole idea of a more flexible work schedule and i imagine 
that a lot of companies that are seeing their employees refuse to go back are the ones that maybe are demanding more in-person presence than others, do we think? I think Bill was, I think he's right. Mark Smith's comments, I bet, were really fascinating. You know, the, the phrase for this is the, the grand uh, resignation. It's a national uh, phenomenon. And I think it, it does have to do with the pandemic giving everybody sort of new perspective um, on their jobs, on the the work and home life balance and whether or not, you know, I just think a lot of people had a chance to pause, take a step back and, and reevaluate. And I, I, you know, anecdotally, I've heard lots of stories about people who worked in restaurants and, and jobs of that nature who decided to go to school and, and get into something more like a career. Now, as Mark Smith pointed out, you can, you can have a career in restaurants, particularly here, I think it's it's a it's a you know decently paying uh, career out here, especially when you get into management. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's it is you said it in it. It's a national phenomenon, but I think that there are a lot of factors locally that are making it so much worse here. And and it really is. I mean, it was interesting. We had Adam Fine, who is the superintendent of the East Hampton School District. Bob Challoner, who's the chief administrative officer of Stony Brook Southampton Hospital, John Tortorella from Tortorella Pools, and uh, Mark Smith, who is with the uh, Honest Man Restaurant Group, which owns five restaurants, I think, in East Hampton, including Rowdy Hall and Nick and Tony's and a couple of others. And they just across the board said exactly the same things. They're all experiencing that. And then we had uh, Nancy Passaretti from Budaberry drop in for a conversation too. And, and, you know, and at the retail level, like anything I've ever experienced and I'm, I'm scared, I'm scared. And I don't know what the future is going to hold. And I think that it's, um, it's everything. Is it uh, unemployment? Is it housing? Is it, um, I think what Mark said, um, that people don't necessarily want to work you know, nights and weekends, and this is what our business is, for sure. Um, but I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm scared for the Hamptons. I think that um, what is going to happen if we can't, you know, serve the people here who, you know, buy these, you know, houses for tens of millions of dollars, and we can't, you know, serve them food, you know, like what is going to happen? Her um, comments were just in, incredible. I felt so bad for her. She gave an impassioned speech, I guess, uh, the, just the, the trouble she's had keeping employees and, and she's doing a lot of the work herself. I mean, I'm a frozen yogurt store. I'm paying $25, $27 an hour plus tips. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. And, you know, people are complaining, you know, oh my God, $12 a cup for a cup of yogurt. But I mean, it's crazy what we have to pay to pump yogurt. And, you know, not to mention all the other things with inflation and everything else. I mean, what it costs to bring yogurt out to the Hamptons now. And it's really, you know, getting difficult. Things are getting. And I think she pays well, but I think on that, that lower level, you're really seeing a huge need for employees. I think that we're going to see much fewer kids in these jobs that they were traditionally in. One article I read was that many youth were going into jobs like summer camps where they could be outside and having fun and 
yes, you're supervising a bunch of kids and it's a pain having been a camp counselor. I can tell you that, but that's a much better way to spend the summer than to be in a, a hot restaurant, right? Or, or you'd rather work during the day than work at nights. And kids were not vaccinated. We're only getting to the point now where teenagers are getting vaccinated. So if you had an unvaccinated teen, did you really want to send that kid into a workplace? Maybe the parent that would have put their kid to work to get those life skills was not about to do that during the pandemic. And then conversely, childcare, I think really drives these things because you had people who were working jobs and putting their kids into childcare. And when they stopped working those jobs and they started watching those kids themselves 24 seven, they realized after paying for childcare, it doesn't really makes financial sense for me, does it? I'm probably paying as much in childcare that I'm making by going out and working. Maybe there's a little bit of a difference, but is that little bit of a financial difference enough of an incentive for me to work a job? And maybe it's not. If you could even find childcare, that's like a big issue. I, I think I think I had read that a lot of, of, of women didn't return to the workplace because they had to homeschool, you know, even older kids right. last year. So a lot of them had to drop out of work just to be home to monitor the children during their school day on Zoom. And uh, it sounds like women in particular are the ones who didn't go back to work. Um, and even getting a, you know, even if you can find a place for your for your kid to go, daycare is very difficult to find. Um, super expensive. And that's an industry that's gotten really hit by lack of workers. You know, it just doesn't pay that well. And you have to have, you know, because of the nature of working with children, there's very strict laws about how many caregivers you have to have per child or, you know, how many kids, like each caregiver can only work with X amount of kids. So, you know, you can't, especially if they're, they're little babies, you have to have a very high ratio. And um, I think that's going to be a big issue that going forward out here is the, the daycare aspect. I listened to one podcast and families are paying like $24,000 a year um, for, for preschool childcare. I mean, it's just, it just boggles, boggles the mind that, um, that it's so expensive. And I, I think, um, you know, the part, part of the president's recovery plan in, includes, you know, some kind of um, effort to alleviate some of that stress on, on families, either by, by helping them to pay for childcare or, um, you know, there's, there's other measures as well. The other thing that I thought was interesting about the conversation was how it connects to so many other issues um, that we're dealing with. It connects to, for instance, John Tortorella mentioned the H2B uh, visas and the fact that there are fewer and fewer seasonal worker visas available these days. And that was a program. None, none during the pandemic, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that was a real crisis then, but even before the pandemic, yeah. the number of those visas started to drop. And, and as he said, you know, the number of, of H2B visas that are available in Suffolk County, you could use that many of those workers just on the, the South H2B Fork. Uh, program is that we can bring people on a visa from overseas for a period of months, let's say seven to eight months. Um, the problem is that it's been a mess because the unions have tried to block it. So they only, have, they only allow so many jobs, so many visas. Let's say there'd be 100,000 countrywide. 
we need 100,000 just out here, you know, or part of Long Island as well. So that's been a problem. When you have um, seasonal businesses really like the pool companies and the landscaping companies and the restaurants and all of that, um, they rely really heavily on that program and it, and it hasn't kept up pace. Um, it also connects up with the uh, immigration policy. Um, John Tortorella raised that issue. And I think it's a fair question. You know, the conversation was about the fact that undocumented workers are a big part of the local workforce. And that's just a fact. And for the most part, um, you know, we, Mark Smith talked about his restaurant will not pay people off the books. books. We pay, you know, we pay people overtime. I mean, the problems generated by not following labor laws are much worse than the labor shortage. So, um, you know, we, we run our businesses by the books. But yeah, sure, absolutely. If there's a small restaurant owner that, you know, chef manager and he does all the books and everything and he's willing to pay people cash off the books. Yeah, that's going to uh, affect an employee's, you know, a low wage earner's uh, decision. You know, I can either go to work for the Honest Man Group and and make, OK, $25 an hour on the books, which will net out to maybe, I don't know, $20 an hour or $18 an hour. I could go to work for Joe restaurant and get 25 cash. But he says, you know, there are restaurants that do that. And if they'll pay cash to somebody who's undocumented, you know, if it's $25 an hour in cash, as opposed to being on the books, that's six or $7, $8 an hour um, in taxes that doesn't get collected and goes into the pocket of the worker. That starts to change the, the wage scales for the companies that are trying to follow the law. So, and, and John Tortorella said the same thing happens in his industry. So I, I, I was just really struck by, you know, we asked, John Tortorella said he has 30 positions in the summertime that he could have filled. Um, Mark Smith said they could use between 50 and 75 people between their, their five restaurants right now. And Bob Challoner said the hospital has 120 what open Adam positions. Said, I can echo. We have a we have a probably the largest workforce on the South Fork here. We're about 1,400 employees, um, and uh, we have 50, 60 different specialties of um, employees that we have to try and fill. Um, and it's we have the highest vacancy rate and uh, some of the highest turnover rates that we've uh, that we've ever seen currently. At the same time, you know, there's tremendous pressure on the hospital to continue to expand services out into the community. So we've been growing. Um, so we need additional workforce just to help us grow. I think we've got about 120 open positions right now. Um, and we're seeing many of the many of the same issues. I mean, we've always had issues of um, of uh, the cost of living out here. Eighty percent of those fourteen hundred employees live west of the canal, um, so that's a real challenge. A hundred huge numbers. Twenty jobs are sitting there unfilled. That you know they're they're available to be filled. Imagine the drag on the economy that this is this is having locally. Uh, it's it's. It's really stunning. And by the way, this all does tie back then to a conversation about affordable housing too. Yeah, that's something that we have going on here that other parts of the country maybe aren't even dealing with. But, you know, I, I feel like it's everything is so much more compounded out here because of that issue. One of the things that I think is going to be interesting, I think they talked about that East Hampton that's going to be or the, the high school is going to be hosting a affordable housing forum kind of thing. And it'll be interesting to see if they 
they start thinking about changing what's allowed, you know, like, like people who have little detached cottages on their property right now, you're not allowed in East Hampton to renovate those and rent them out as a single person dwelling. But I wonder if that's going to be something that they're going to have to look at changing and allowing more accessory structures to be used for housing. Do we know what the situation is in Southampton town? Is that sort of thing permitted? Jay Schneiderman, when he was first elected, I mean, he did have a program and a plan to allow um, more accessory apartments. Um, it was limited to, and, and I, I don't remember the specifics exactly, it was limited to certain areas um, like, like Hampton Bays, where you already have, I don't want to say affordable housing, but you have more affordable housing than, than in, in Point East. It was, it was limited to certain areas and certain size um, properties and, and lots. And he did try to change that a little bit. I don't know how successful it was. Anecdotally, I mean, I know somebody who who has an accessory apartment and wanted to make it legal, but the hoops that you have to go through um, to to get that, you know, to get that permit to to rent that out were just daunting. And and this person kind of backed away from that and and isn't providing that housing, isn't making any any income on that housing, but isn't providing that housing because of all those hoops. Brendan, I wonder if that's a potential. I mean, you wrote this week about uh, the community housing fund legislation being signed by Governor Kathy Hochul. Um, the towns are now going to have to come up with ways to spend. I mean, Southampton's expecting $15 million a year if this is put into place by the voters uh, to spend on affordable housing. And they can do that in a variety of ways. I wonder if that's one of the options that's available is that you could provide um, financial assistance to homeowners who want to add accessory apartments that could be affordable. Well, you could have to potentially pay a lot of money to get it legalized, right? Have your niece live there for a few years and then your niece moves out. You're uncomfortable having a stranger live there. Now that you're no longer a registered affordable accessory apartment, you don't have to pay the expense of having that apartment removed. And then two years later, when your nephew wants to move in, now you have to pay to build it again. It's onerous and it's costly to provide a, an affordable accessory apartment. Well, that's what I wonder, like if the, you know, the talk of the, the community preservation fund or you know, starting a, a new sort of affordable housing arm of that at the various towns, I wonder if that might be one way that the towns think about using that money and helping people renovate spaces with the caveat that they have to be affordable for X amount of years, if, you know, like actually helping people make those um, improvements using public money, but leaving the how the housing in stock for a certain amount of time. That's on the table. Really, at this point, everything's on the table. Each town has to come up with its own affordable housing plan before it could put a referendum on the ballot in November 2022 or earlier if they get it together earlier. Uh, so each town could individualize its plan to meet that town's needs and to meet the tastes of the local people, because there might be one town where that sounds appealing to them and another town where it doesn't sound appealing to them. You know, I wonder, in, in an article that we did leading up to the session on hiring challenges, um, Mike Wright talked to David Hirsch, who is another restaurateur who owns uh, Cowfish and Rumba in Hampton Bays and Flora in West Hampton Beach, and he has a couple of other restaurants elsewhere. Um, and he talked about it may be time for local governments to start thinking about changing zoning laws to allow restaurants in particular, 
which are very seasonal out here in nature, to build dormitory style housing that would be able to, to house their staff. And I, I have to say, this is an unusual area in that it has such a seasonal economy, but really no, no well delineated way to house people who are here um, working for the summers. I mean, it used to be, um, you know, for better or worse, by the way, and, you know, I'm not suggesting these were the good old days, but, you know, you had migrant labor who, who lived in work camps. There was a place for them to live where they were working. You had a couple of places I know in East Hampton that were sort of like old motels that served as seasonal housing for people who came out to work in the summertime um, in restaurants and other places. But the cost of, of property has gone up so much that a lot of those places have now disappeared. And there's just no place to put seasonal workers, even if you could bring them in from elsewhere. And if you can't grow them locally, because Annette, you're right, I don't, or I forget who said it, but I don't think we're going to get young workers back in the mix that like we had for generations. So some, something's got to give. You have to have people. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. The other thing that's interesting is how, you know, Sag Harbor and probably Bridgehampton too, there used to be a series almost like boarding houses. You know, there's a lot of big fam, big houses in Sag Harbor that had multiple apartments and all of those, of course, were snapped up and, and turned back into grand one family homes. Um, though interesting that we had a story about the Sag Harbor cinema buying um, a house in Sag Harbor that, uh, that does have apartments and they're going to be using that to house their, um, their staff. But, but it wasn't cheap. How, how much did they pay for that um, building? Do we know? Three million bucks. Three million dollars for an old house that's got maybe five apartments. I mean, there's not a lot of companies that can drop three million dollars on, you know, I don't even know exactly how they're affording it. I, I think they, it came from donations. Yeah. Um, I think six, six apartments. Six apartments. Um, in, in that house on Suffolk Street. I mean, I think that's part of the answer. Certainly the companies that that, that can do that, that would have the money to, to do that. I think if, you know, they, the uh, Sag Harbor Cinema worked out a deal with the bank so that they could, um, so that they could do the mortgage, um, you know, without any down payment. So it was favorable um, that way. If there's companies that, that can do that, I mean, that that's part of the answer. If people can't, you know, if people can't recruit people to move here to work in some of these positions, you know, if, if you've got, apartments ready for them and, and housing. You know, when I first started working for the press, <clears throat> I mean, it wasn't company housing, but but the, uh, you know, the paper owned a, a number of apartments in West Hampton Beach. Um, and I rented one of those apartments and it was um, um, 
affordable at, at, at the time. Um, and that really helped me because I mean, I was coming from, from Rochester and trying to find an apartment even back then, um, you know, 20, 25 years ago, 20 some years ago was, was nearly impossible. And if it hadn't been for that situation, I don't know how I would have made it. And, and we had reporters who lived in rooms and houses back then too. I was only able to work out here because I had illegal housing situations. You know, you can't have four unrelated people living in the same house in a single family house. Well, I had six or more. And guess what? They were all young professionals. You know. That's the flip side of the code enforcement crackdown. I, yeah. I mean, I think we, I think it's reasonable that we should be expecting safety and you don't want to cram a lot of people into, into dwellings, but this is the flip side of that is you lose housing that was really being used by the working class. Um, and it's just another reason you know, just an, another challenge. And, and by the way, this all ties into sewage and the lack of sewage out here. Uh, the lack of sewer systems makes it difficult to come up with solutions because if you say you wanted to do dormitory housing um, somewhere in Montauk for 40 people who worked in restaurants there, wh wh how would you set up a sewage system to treat 40 you know, even 40 toilets. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's just, it, it becomes, all of these, these problems are sort of interconnected. Um, maybe the, the community housing fund being able to put some money into affordable housing will start the dominoes to fall in the right direction for a change because it's been a long time coming, no question. Did we find that all the issues were the were similar for all of the um, you know we had such different participants in the panel from Adam Fine who's now the superintendent of a school versus a restaurateur Mark Smith versus John Tortorella of the pool company and Bob Challoner of the hospital were was it were I, I thought it would be interesting to highlight maybe some of the differences like Adam Fine's um, issue was that very interesting the whole idea of you know he used to when he'd have a teaching position open he would get hundred or more resumes. Um, and now if he gets 20 for the same job, it's a lot. And a lot of people are writing from, you know, Nassau County thinking that they can handle the commute. Emergency has, has surrounded our hiring. We have always had a difficulty in recruiting staff members, uh, specifically teaching staff in a number of areas um, where, you know, up island schools uh, would be able to solicit hundreds of resumes for, we would usually get half that. We're not even at a quarter of that now. Um, I think compounded with the pandemic and um, people wanted to be closer to home, people, you know, the affordable housing issue, which you know is something that's very important to our board of education. Uh, we're not getting enough candidates out on the East End um, to fill our positions. Uh, and, and this year we did our, our greatest number of hiring that we, we could possibly do in the last, I think, five years, and we, we just barely made it. But the realities um, of the commute is. are often not something that they end up being able to do. So I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about um, Adam, Adam Fine and the school's position with hiring. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the interesting thing he said, too, is that his district, but also really every school district east of the canal, has a situation now where when they hire a new teacher, when they get really talented teachers in, they essentially commute for two years, put in two years, and then get jobs at other districts closer to home. And so these districts become sort of a starting ground. When you start looking at the positions such as, let's say, a Spanish teacher, a physics teacher, a chemistry teacher, 
um, in those areas, which they already the pool is very diminished to begin with. We're getting maybe two resumes, three, you know, maintain an educational and academic program and, and keep with the traditions of the school district. And it's very difficult to find those people, recruit those people that has long term financial impact on the district because we have to be flexible in the amount we hire these people at. But um, again, the talent pool and pool is not there anymore. I mean, Adam Fine said, you know, what we really want is teachers who are going to make a career of being in East Hampton schools and uh, who want to be here and, and stay here. And may become administrators at some point and, and work their way up. And I mean, it's, it's just not happening. Uh, and at this point, I, I've been saying it to other superintendents, we're not even getting a candidate. The candidates aren't even making it past the canal now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, when it, forget forget teaching positions. When I look at administrative positions, forget it. I mean, those if there are six openings for a, a, a principal's position or a six openings for a directorship on Long Island, I am not going to get those candidates if I have those same openings. I'm, uh, you know, we've made a commitment to breed and, and and train our own because of that. Having had a kid in the school system. You know, it, it was it, it was a little disheartening to have teachers that weren't really part of the community. You know, it's like, you know, you didn't get to see your teachers in the grocery store on the weekends because, you know, or they, they couldn't do a lot of extracurricular kind of club running clubs or things like that because they had to start going back to their own communities. And I think for the teachers, it, it, it's upsetting, too, if they have their own families because they kind of want to raise their families in the same place where they're teaching, you know, so. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I raised the question with, with the panel, just for sake of conversation, you know, is it fair to say that you want to live in the community where you work? I mean, is that a reasonable expectation? I think it is. Yeah, I just, you asked a good question, Joe, should people be able to, to live in the community in which they work? And I, I think absolutely. I think there's one, I mean, just in terms of the quality of the uh, life for the workers, but two is economically, it just makes a great deal of sense. I think every one of us would agree that this this revolving door of employment that we have um, is driving our costs up. Um, and it's not only driving up our costs, but it's all affecting our customer service as well. We're all struggling to meet a high, very high and rising expectations of customer service and we just don't have the people often and that's another factor that contributes to some of our staffing when our staff are being screamed at all the time because we're short-staffed um, that drives people away it's just uh, you know living in the community creates a stable workforce for us that I think reduces our, our turnover reduces our training time our hiring costs ultimately will produce, I think, a healthier community. So I completely agree. And I agree. You know, I, don't, I don't know. I feel like these are, these are fundamental questions that this region needs to start answering, which is, so you have some of the most expensive real estate on the planet here. Do we carve out places so that real people who keep this region moving and working can stay here and live here as they always have. I mean, this is a region that's always had working class people keeping it going. And, and you know, are, are we just now going to be blocked out of this area? And what happens to the people who are left when they can't, they can't hire, uh, when, when, when there's no landscapers 
available because they can't they can't find anybody or they have to pay exorbitant prices because people are making the drive from Nassau County. I don't know the answer to that stuff, but I, I feel like those are the questions that need to be asked now and, and we need to start coming. We need to stop just sort of navel gazing. We need to start coming up with some real answers. There's a situation here where we have a lot of people that they do bring their own staffs. They have live-in domestic help, a live-in gardener, a live-in chef, and they don't really care if all of the local working class people get driven out of the area. It's not going to affect them. You're going to have to appeal to the people that are somewhere between the middle class and the upper, upper class to say, do you still want to have restaurants? The people with private chefs don't care, but you're going to have to find those people in the middle and say, we're going to have to change the zoning and we're going to have to allow some development if you want to have restaurants anymore. Or the restaurants, I mean, people who can go to the restaurants are just going to be limited to to people who can afford, um, you know, afford if these restaurants are going to bring people into work and they're going to have to pay them twice as much as, as they would get paid, you know, up west somewhere that that cost goes to the consumer. And, and that's, you know, the big issue too. To, to be able to employ people, I, I imagine it's the same with, with the pool company, with restaurants, um, you know, with, with any consumer business. If, they're, if they have to pay more to, to get people out here, then, then that cost has to come from somewhere. It's going to come from the consumer. So are, the rest, are there going to be restaurants, but you're going to have to pay twice as much as, as you're paying now for an entree? And then who gets to go to the restaurants? Certainly not, certainly not the working class. Serious question, though, Brendan. I wonder how many of the biggest states, you know, I think a hundred years ago, 75 years ago, even 50 years ago, there was a lot. The, the biggest states were self contained in the sense that they had carriage houses and they had staff quarters, and, and you did have a lot of live in staff. I don't know how, how often that's true these days with biggest states. I think they still have those staff. But I don't know that they're living on those properties anymore. In some cases, clearly they do. But I think that's a phenomenon that maybe has changed because, you know, it used to be if you had a carriage house, you would rent that out to your staff. But now that carriage house becomes a valuable piece of your property that you can use for guests when they come and you maybe want to keep it vacant. And I, I just I wonder how that may be a smaller element of how this has all changed that the staff at these big estates now have to find housing where they didn't have to before. Well, a lot of the estates that you see in front of the regulatory boards, they have, you know, a master and then eight guest rooms that all have ensuite bathrooms. But then on top of that, they'll have like end room for staff quarters in the basement and room for a, a staff wing over here. So as we're knocking down houses and putting up bigger ones, a lot of these bigger ones that are going up actually have more opportunities for staff housing than less. Interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't know the answer to, I, I think that the, the, if the towns are able to put together plans and the voters approve the community housing fund, there's gonna be money to spend on good ideas those good ideas need to come out now. And, and, and you know, you're gonna have the constant, look at every affordable housing project that's come up in Southampton town in particular. And there's always been an opposition from neighbors who don't wanna see it. And, and yet I think of the project on Sandy Hollow in Southampton, 
uh, in Takahoe, uh, that there were there was there were there was some pretty heated opposition from some neighbors to that project. I mean, I defy you to even notice that project now when you drive past. It's a lovely little development. Uh, it seems to be full. Uh, I assume it's working class folks um, who are living in there. And it's, I mean, the thought that it might be a blight of some kind is really pretty dispelled. I don't live next door to it, but I don't see any evidence that that it's a blight of any kind. And, and Spion Commons, Brendan, is, is another example, right? I mean, that was actually a pretty smart uh, project that was put near uh, uh, public transportation. Um, it, it was well thought out and there was still opposition to it. It was shrunk. It would have been, uh, you know, maybe a dozen or so units larger had they not uh, yielded to community opposition to make it a more tolerable size. But isn't that the best place for affordable housing right next to the train station? It's kind of undesirable land to build a single family house on, but it's also a place where you could have commuters who work in Montauk. They won't even need to own a car. That's how convenient it is. And, you know, we gave up on that because the neighbors didn't want that much density in their neighborhood. But by putting people in Spionk to work on the East End, rather than having people drive from Patchogue or Babylon or Nassau to work in the East End, you're not increasing traffic, you're reducing traffic. I thought that the thing that um, I think John Tortorella was talking about with the visa program is interesting because he also said that the, the H-2B visas that they do get are very limited. They're only allowed to be here for like, what, seven months tops? Is that what it was? Yeah, I don't even think it's that long. Yeah, even if it's that long. And, and not only are they limited, but the, the time period is really short. And it's like, these are, you know, the, the days are sort of gone when a company like is needed workers only for the summer. You know, these are, are year-round businesses, you know, like John Tortorella may clean and maintain pools in the summer, but starting now they need to start building pools and, and doing that sort of thing. And having to lose those workers is a real hardship for them. So I wonder if that's something that needs to be looked at. I think one of the things he said that I thought was interesting is the idea of trying to expand that program so workers can come for, say, three years rather than a few months. And it, it just seems like a very strange mismatch is that you have all of these jobs sitting unfilled, yet you have certain people in this country screaming about immigrants coming in and taking their jobs. Um, but it seems like there's a lot of jobs that aren't being taken. And it would be really interesting if they could get a, a visa program where you know, uh, immigrants aren't seen as a threat, especially those who want to come and work for a couple of years and then go back and have no interest in settling here. You know, I got, I got to point out too that the H-2B visas tend to be people coming from Europe. Um, and I don't believe that those visas tend to be people coming from um, Mexico, Central or South America. And look, let's just put the cards on the table here. The, the immigrant community, especially from, um, you know, the southern regions, um, provide a lot of the, the workforce here. And the, again, this is, this is similar to what I said about code enforcement. You crack down on code enforcement, that's a good thing. But the, the downside to that is you lose affordable options for people to live. Well, it's the same with immigration. So you crack down on immigrants getting here, whether it's legally or illegally. And when they're here and they're undocumented and they're working, they're contributing to the local workforce. When you crack down on that, you're gonna pay a price in the local economy. You don't have those workers. And there are not people 
to take those jobs. It's, it's just, we need to sort of puncture some of these fallacies, which is that, that undocumented workers are taking American jobs in this region. That's just nonsense. Those are workers that are filling essential jobs that they cannot, that companies cannot find workers to do. Um, and, and then that adds a whole nother layer of, so is that a healthy thing that, that you have jobs that, that are considered unattractive to Americans that we're now bringing in immigrants to do those jobs? That's kind of not, not fair either. It's, it's a very complicated situation. And I don't think there's any real simple answers for any of it. I, I agree, but and I think, but that also comes then back to, so so you you could you could you could take un, undocumented residents and and you could you could give them work permits, let them work, and all that. But then it also comes back to the to the housing issue. I think you have a lot of undocumented people who are living um, in in overcrowded illegal residences, and that's why they're able to do you know some of the work for some of the pay that that they do. Are you then? making that problem worse by saying, you know, op opening, I'm not, you know, by, by opening it up to, you know, to, to whatever, and, and then you have that housing issue again, too. So th th it's related, it's hand in hand, it, it's got to go together. You know, as an aside, I, th I think it's an interesting thing we learned when we started a Spanish language paper back in the, the, the knots. Uh, it didn't last particularly long because I think we were a little ahead of the curve. But when we were planning a uh, Spanish language version of the press, our entire conversation about that was, well, people are coming here from Spanish speaking cultures, looking to establish roots and become long-term citizens. And so we're going to give them access to local information about what's going on in governments and schools and, and, and you know, make them full citizens, uh, participatory basically that way. But what we learned um, was that many of the people who come here to work have no plans to stay here for more than a couple of years. Their plan is to be here for two or three years, whether they're documented or not, and then make enough money to go back home and do something back home. And so their interests were more in their home countries. We eventually sort of rolled that, that newspaper into something more like, um, here's what's going on in some of the home countries, which isn't what we do. So we, you know, it, it became sort of a failed experiment. But I found that really interesting because I, I think our view of this immigration and what its goals are, I think is different from the reality. And we have to acknowledge that. But the other question is like, what happens to the next generation? Like my daughter's generation, she's 20 off at college. I don't see her ever coming back here to live. Um, I think she's pretty much decided that her future is not going to be here. It's just, um, you know, whether it's just because she feels like the area is too small and she grew up here, she wants to do something different or if it's just the cost of living. So I think that's another, it's gonna be another interesting thing to check out is how many, how many kids who grew up here are coming back here to raise families and to work. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like we have our own little ball, big brain drain going on in here. I think most of those kids probably head out and go somewhere else. And you know what, Brendan, I'm curious what you think that is there, is this sort of a sum zero, a zero sum game where as locals who have owned homes for long periods of time sell and move away, and those houses are often bought by people who have 
plans to use them as part-time residences. They're, they don't necessarily plan to be full-time uh, residents. That sort of chips away at the community, doesn't it? And I mean, at a certain point, as Annette said, you have a new generation that, that you hope will grow up here and stay here. But now you're taking these houses that had families, they're not even family houses anymore, they're, they're part-time houses. Um, you're gonna have less and less than that. I feel like at a certain point, there's a tipping point where you start to lose the community. You don't have your fire firefighters, you don't have your ambulance company workers, you don't have people to work any of the jobs here. Everything you explain is true. And then what happened is COVID flipped it where houses were being sold from a full-time person to a part-time person. And that part-time person maybe had a bigger, nicer house that they built or renovated into something nicer, but they were using less services because their kids weren't going to school here. They weren't here year round. And that would kind of work for the governments that are getting more tax revenue and not having to provide as many services. The schools don't have to have kids that uh, add to their bills. But now you're seeing that part, that second homeowner part-time community becoming more of a year-round community. However, even though they're here year-round, their jobs are not here. Their jobs are in Manhattan. Their jobs are remote. Their jobs are elsewhere. So yes, we have more of a year-round vibe, but they didn't bring the year-round employment with them. So I guess that's the other thing. Are there any think tanks out here or new businesses that, you know, I mean, you got the dot-com thing that when it happens on, on the West Coast and all of the, the really cutting-edge corporations in San Francisco that are virtual um, in many ways, but any chance that we'll get any those sorts of companies setting up shop out here? I think that's the thing. We don't really have those kinds of, of businesses. We're mostly a service economy. You know, we don't have a lot of startup uh, intellectual property or really vibrant college towns or anything that sort of creates that next generation option. And the irony, of course, is that Amazon's coming in and I'm going to bet that however many jobs they create at that warehouse, most of them will be filled by people commuting from the West. I, I just... I doubt very much that you'll see those jobs go to Southampton town residents. We'll, we'll see. Um, it would be interesting if, if it turns out that way, but I, I'm just, I'm skeptical that that'll happen. We saw that in, in West Hampton Beach, the industrial center that they built there was originally supposed to be a, a technology hub at the airport in West Hampton Beach airport. That was a great plan, but none of those technology companies wanted to come to West Hampton Beach for whatever reason. So now you have some nice businesses in there. You've got Tate's Cookies and, you know, and you've got some other businesses in there and you've got Amazon coming in there, but it's certainly not the technology jobs that um, that were envisioned or, or were promised or helped to, to, to get that approved. So what was the upshot from the uh, express session? Was there, was, there, or was there any optimism as far as uh, the hiring situation out here? I don't know, what do you think, Bill? I don't think there was any optimism. I, I think no, I, and I think the upshot is that that some changes need to be made. Um, you, you know, uh, local government perhaps changes, or you know, different different um, different legislation that could come about to help them out. I think you talked about you know housing, you know, employee housing for restaurants, that type of thing. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, you talk about the hospital, and they they can't. Look, it's it, it came back to housing and the hospital can't recruit people from out of town or out of state because nobody, you know, 
nobody can afford to live out here. Nobody can live out the 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 school district was was the same thing. So if there's any optimism, I don't know it was expressed necessarily at the sessions, but the optimum optimism is is now this this new affordable housing um, you know money that's that's going to be coming in and 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 all that. I think that that's the moving forward part here. That that if you can you can give people an opportunity to to come out here and live out here, then then some of those jobs will will be filled. Um, I don't I don't know what you do you know, in the meantime. Jeez, it's kind of ironic that doctors can't afford to live out here, yet we lowly newspaper editors are ensconced. That's all just because we got here early. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've been here long enough. Well, it's also, I mean, Bob, Bob Challoner was saying, you know, if you're, if you're a doctor coming out of med school and, and you're applying for positions and you're, you, you know, and you're looking at Southampton, you know, Stony Brook Southampton Hospital, which pays X amount of money for for a new doctor coming out of school, and you're looking at a hospital in Nebraska that's paying the same X number of money, um, you know, for a hospital for a doctor coming out of out of med school, and the cost of living there is is half of what it is here, you know. While it's beautiful here, and while you know people would love to live here, where where are you going to go to start your your medical career? I'm not positive I would go to Nebraska, but that's just well. Me. There's <laughs> other there's other places too that that are certainly. Um, where you can get an apartment for under a thousand dollars a month, you know. Brendan, let me make a statement and see if you agree or disagree with me. The Community Preservation Fund was approved in 1998, and I don't think at the time it was approved there was any indication that it would have the kind of impact that it had, raising a hundred uh, 1.75 billion dollars since then for land preservation. I think the CPF forever changed the nature of the East End in a lot of ways, um, almost all of them good, but it certainly meant higher property values. It made this a more attractive area, a lot of the real positives. The Community Housing Fund, if it's established in all five towns, is only gonna be a half a percent as opposed to 2%, but I think it has the potential to have an even greater impact on the region moving forward and changing it into something that can either be something really healthier or it can take a turn and do something um, very bad. I think it's, the stakes are high, but I think it has the chance to have an even bigger impact than the CPF, even though it's only a quarter of, of the, the tax generation. Well, the community housing fund is gonna change, but not always in perceivable ways. Like if they take 200,000 from the community housing fund, to subsidize the purchase of a $700,000 house to bring it down to five so an income qualified family can live there. Nobody sees that. There's a family there that is a local family and not a second homeowner. So that does happen, but you don't really see the change. There will be some things that we do see, such as more uh, high density housing go in, but it's going to be different than it was in the past. Whereas in the past, in order to do high density housing, you had to build very densely so then you could rent or sell each unit at an affordable rate. But now that you're able to underwrite that with community housing fund money, you could actually build less dense and still be affordable. So we'll see multifamily developments that don't have to be massive in order to meet the affordable housing needs. And because these places are going to be sited throughout the town, 
and not all densely crammed in one area where it's this massive development, you're going to notice it a lot less than people take notice of other developments that we've had on the East End. It's a great point. Other than the traffic will be coming from everywhere. Traffic is another problem we're never going to fix. Affordable housing would, would help. I wonder, you know, I think it might be interesting as this goes forward that maybe we'll start looking at, um, at towns or villages or municipalities that have had success in creating the type of um, of housing that we may want to look to. I'm not sure where those communities exist, but I'm sure somebody out there is already kind of ahead of this curve. Yeah, I remember I remember there was a, uh, a business model of people who had RVs that provided temporary housing in one community whose seasonal, you know, was a summer seasonal, and then they would move it to a winter seasonal place. That makes a lot of sense to me. I feel like that's not necessarily a, it's not the solution, but there might be an element of a solution in there somewhere. You never know. I know you like those little, those little RV things. That's true. I mean, look, if you look at, at, at young people who are coming out here for the summer and um, are working long hours in restaurants anyway, and, and partying a lot of the time too, I, I think, I think they're okay with, with um, meager housing that's, that's adequate as long as it's adequate. And I think that's the, that might be part of the solution here is that we can do low impact um, and serve at least a part of the community. And that doesn't solve the problem for everybody, but it solves some of the problem. You think I'd park them all at the West Hampton beach airport. We could put, well, you know what, we could park them all in the Amazon warehouse parking lot. People on West Hampton beach. will love that. <laughs> this is thorny and and my fear is as we said in the editorial the clock is ticking the towns have got to come up with a plan for spending this money if they want to convince voters to approve it and they're going to need some smart ideas so if you've got this is where brendan my idea comes in houseboats we just use a lot of houseboats until the hurricane comes through yeah there are no perfect solutions Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.